Thank you. I was going to see if you all would be conformists or if you would wait for instruction. Now I know. I'm just kidding. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 54 as we continue our trek through Isaiah. For some of you, I know that this has been a long and tedious journey. It reminds me of what our dear sister Mandy called Lawton's forced marches back in the day. But as with Lawton's forced marches, uh, the walk is beneficial and we have seen many wonderful things along the way. Strange things, confusing things, and today will be no different. Now, when I went on those forced marches, for those of you who don't know, Lawton uh, would um, organize nature hikes in the spring, I think, um, further south in the valley. And um, me, being the um, astute person that I am, would go and say, cool, we're going to be outside. And uh, so I'd go and I'd say, look, there's a tree. It has leaves. Oh, look, there's a flower. It's purple. And Lawton would very patiently groan inwardly. And he would proceed to tell me, that's not just any old tree, Dan. That is such and such. I still don't have to say it. That is such and such a flower. He understood what he was seeing in ways that I did not. And he saw things that I didn't know to see. And he appreciated things that I didn't know to appreciate in such it is with our passage today. It's a common passage. It's a passage that we often hear preached actually out of context. Because in order to get to Isaiah 54, we have to have gone through Isaiah 1 through 40, and then we've had to have gone through Isaiah 40 through 53. We have to remember that we got here along a certain way. And that certain way includes Isaiah walking into the temple in the year that King Uzziah was died, the year that King Uzziah died, and beholding the glory of the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that pathway includes Isaiah coming to Ahaz as he's facing this great military threat and reminding Ahaz of the glory that he had seen in the temple. The glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And our pathway is included walking with Isaiah through 40 years of ministry until, lo and behold, he comes and he has almost identical conversation with Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, facing almost identical situation, reminding Hezekiah of the glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who reigns today and forever. And watching as both kings early in his ministry and late in his ministry say, that's great, 
Isaiah, I'm glad that means a lot to you. But I have some real military issues facing me here. And so is our heart, isn't it? And so having proven their faithlessness and their fickleness, Isaiah turns around and he says, Therefore, let me proclaim to you the double glory, the double comfort of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Glory, glory. Comfort, comfort. Tell me something I can take to the bank. And so Isaiah tells them something they can take to the bank. Read with me Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate... For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and people the desolate cities. Don't be afraid, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So have I sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hilltops may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God to us, his people, in this place and this time. So let us go and ask that he would open our ears that we may hear him speak. Father, in that day when Israel gathered at Sinai, your people saw dark clouds and they saw flashes of lightning and they heard rumbling and explosions of thunder. What they heard as a mighty storm, your servant Moses heard as the voice of the living God. So Father, we pray that by the powerful working of your spirit, 
you would equip us to hear. You would grant us courage to hear as you speak to us today. Protect us from error and feast us upon the wonder and the power of your great love that is ours in Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. So, an oxymoron is a figure of speech that puts together two seemingly opposing and perhaps even actually opposing mutually negating terms. They're fun sometimes. So, for example, larger half. My brother would go to a special class in which there were snacks and there were little pastries that were cut up and he would say, I want the larger half. And his teacher would look at him and say, there is no such thing. He had a hard time with math. How about this one? Clearly confused. I'm clearly confused. I'm, I'm very clear about how confused I am. Or here, here's this, this is one of my favorites. There they are. Here they come. Act naturally. Or the one that is very common, you know, the jumbo shrimp. I mean, how microscopic do shrimpy shrimp have to be? Or how about this one? Military intelligence. Or government worker. That took you a second. And all of our favorites, Microsoft works. <laughs> because no, it doesn't. And another one that is so common today, virtual reality. It's so virtual it can pass as real. Of course, an oxymoron is a, is a little subset as we take these two ideas, these two terms, and we mash them together. But we also have something called a paradox, a juxtaposition of two ideas one explicit, one often remaining implicit because it's common. And these two ideas seem to be contradictory or mutually exclusive. And they force us into an intentional engagement with the idea and closer examination. And upon closer examination, they often yield a deeper, broader, more significant understanding of our self and of others and of the world and society. And so we have such examples, find them abounding in literature. For example, we have, um, oh, my word, now I've, I've recorded them but elsewhere, so I don't have them with me. Um, ah, nuts. So I do not have them. So there's one from Oscar Wilde that's really, that's really um, famous. There are several that appear in Shakespeare. There are several that appear 
uh, by, with Bertrand Russell, and forgive me, I have built that up and then I have to leave you hanging. Come back next week. But we have examples of, the, of these paradoxes also in Scripture. What about this? The burning bush that is not consumed? That's not possible. What about a pregnant virgin? How about that? That's just silliness. Everybody knows that can't be the case. Our passage provides us with just such an example. The danger as we come into our passage is that we've become so accustomed to biblical paradox that we've become indifferent to them or perhaps even impatient with them. Just give me the bottom line, we say. Just give me the executive summary, we say. What's the punchline, we say. Let me get on with things. After all, it's the Sabbath. I've got things to do. Note the paradox. And so let's consider slowly this strange passage. And this strangeness hits us right out of the gate. Sing, O barren one. Yeah, 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 sing, O barren one. That's good, that's good. That's good poetry right there. That'll sing. But it'll also preach. In case you didn't get it the first time, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Rejoice, O barren one. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Enlarge your house. Add on. Verse 4, don't be ashamed. Don't be concerned. Don't be afraid. Those are amazingly rude, insensitive, and downright offensive commands. Sing, O barren one. Rejoice, O barren one. Enlarge, O barren one. Don't be ashamed, O barren one. What's going on there? Well, the barren one, of course, refers to a woman who has not had or cannot have children. Even in our own day, this is a heartbreaking situation. Some of you know the heartbreak. Some of you know it directly. Some of you are near to it. And you know the heartbreak. And in our culture, because it is such a sensitive topic, 
we don't name it. We don't talk about it. Because it hurts. So much loss that is built into that language of, oh, barren one. So much grief that we cannot even describe. So much guilt. Some of you are wondering, how can guilt be associated with that? Well, trust me. Shame. And in the day, you have to understand, in the day, there's so much fear built into it. Fear not only of the present, but fear of the future. Because, you see, they did not have what we presume and rely upon. And that is all of these sort of governmental structures that sort of smooth out the, the vicissitudes and contingencies of life. Don't have a job? Don't worry. Just file for unemployment. You're good. They didn't have that. Didn't plan for retirement? That's all right. You got Social Security. You're good. We'll take care of you. They didn't have that. That's what children were. Children were the economic stability of the household. More children, more productivity. More children, more influence. More children, more stability, more children, more security looking into the future. O barren one, he says. What kind of, what kind of clueless pastor says, sing, O barren one? Do you not get how desperate is my situation? Do you not get the shame with which I am absolutely crushed? The guilt under which I groan? Do you get that I have no options? Sing, O barren one, it says. Just on the, on the face of it, why would you even say that? O barren one. Name it out loud for all to see and hear. Oh, there you go. Trot out my shame. Without varnish. Just there. It reminds me of Jesus in one of his most rude episodes. Jesus, you know, was often rude. And the episode I'm thinking of is when he met the woman at the well and she says, I'm not, I have no husband. And he says, oh yeah, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband, just saying. Jesus, come on, guy. Would you be a little bit more diplomatic? Why are you, why are you like, Naming it like that. That alone is insensitive and rude. Never mind, as we have 
been thinking about actually naming the condition of this one who is addressed. And you will remember, if you remember from back in chapter 51, excuse me, chapter 50, excuse me, no, I'm sorry, 51, verse 17 and following, he's actually described not only the condition, the internal condition of body and soul that is named here, but he's also described the external circumstances. Here we have this person awaking to discover that they have no help for the present and no hope for the future. Barren and bankrupt. This is the one who is addressed. This person has never born a child. Has never been in labor. This person is what our passage calls desolate. There is zero reason to sing. There is zero reason to plan for more people in the house. Zero reason to, to get the nursery ready. Zero reason to add on rooms for the kids. There is zero reason to not be afraid of what others will most assuredly think of me. And what most husbands think in the day. There is zero reason to not worry about tomorrow. I, I can speak for a long time about, about all that I have to be worried about for tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, my retirement. There is zero reason not to worry about it. So the commands themselves are deeply hurtful because they shine a spotlight on the fact that I have no reason to sing. I have no reason to rejoice. I have no reason to plan for tomorrow. It's hurtful. It's, it's, it's a mockery. on the face of it. I've wanted us to camp there so that you can feel the weight of the command to sing. If you can withhold judgment and offense for just a moment, just a moment, if we can consider together for just a moment is there a way that we can hear this command? Is there a way that we can understand this command that opens us up to new possibilities to more fully understand our own condition and our own circumstances and more broadly grasp and understand our circumstances? Let me just summarize the command. Hey, you, 
you're in a really bad place. You're in a really bad condition. I know you don't have to tell me. No, no. No, you're really bad. Really bad condition. In really bad circumstances. But your poor condition and your poor circumstances notwithstanding, I want you to sing. And I want you to rejoice. And I want you to prepare for a completely different reality, a completely different condition, a completely different circumstances that you cannot foresee, that you cannot extrapolate from your current place. You cannot logically add up all the pieces and expect. I want you to sing and to rejoice and to prepare for a completely different condition and circumstance. Now, this is a common theme that runs throughout Scripture and if we're honest and reflecting, we will discover that it runs throughout our life. Think, for example, of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and that whole episode back in Genesis. You remember that Abraham was given a promise in the, in the days following the Tower of Babel. And, the God, and God says to Abram, now I want you to leave your family and your, your community that you know and go to a place that I will show you and I will give you a great name. I will make you a great nation. And so he goes, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, along with Hagar, her maidservant. Well, years pass. And in the process, we learn that Sarah is barren. This has been her condition. She has not born children. She has been proven to be barren, unable to bear children. The promise, however, is that, that Abraham would be made a great nation. And so, according to the conventional wisdom, not only, excuse me, not only is Sarah barren, but years pass. And now she's something like 70 plus years old. And she's thinking to herself, Abraham, let's be reasonable here. God wants us to use our brains. So let's think through this rationally. I'm barren, have been since the day we were married. And moreover, I'm old. I'm long past the years of childbearing, even if I weren't barren. And Abraham, you know that it is common practice around us. It is the conventional wisdom that my maidservant is considered part of me. And so I can give her to you and she can bear a child on my behalf. It was the ancient version of surrogate parenting. That seems reasonable. It seems right. Perhaps that's how God intends to fulfill his purposes. After all, he wants me to use my brain. And so he goes into Hagar and they bear a child and his name is Ishmael. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. You thought well, but that's not my plan. That's not how we're going to do this. 
I said, you, you and Sarah will have a child. Oh! And so, 10 years later or so, Sarah is now, well, several years later, Sarah is now 90 years old. Abraham is 99 years old. And the word comes to him again, you're going to have a child. <laughs> Sarah is in the tent and she hears it. <laughs> and she says, oh, that's great. That's a good one. I'm 90 years old. Am I going to have pleasure in my old age? She says. <laughs> a year later, laughter was born. That's what the name means, Isaac, son of laughter. You named him when you heard the promise. You laughed because it seems impossible and absurd. The theme continues in Israel, faithless and fickle at every turn. And many of you remember the whole tabernacle episode. The Lord, uh, Moses is up on the mountain and he's being given the instructions for the tabernacle and that when all that is done, the Lord says, oh, my word, get down there because your people have rebelled. And that was when we discover that the, that the Israelites have rebelled and they, they called for Aaron to fashion for themselves, fashion for them a God. And so we have the episode of the golden calf. And Moses despairs because he says, how is it going to be possible for me to lead this people through the wilderness and into the promised land when they can't even wait 40 days for me to come back. And the Lord's response is, my point exactly. Some of you are familiar with the story of Naomi. There was a famine in the land, so Naomi and her husband leave and they go to, of all places, Moab that nation of rebels against God's reign in order to make for themselves a living there. And in the meantime, her husband dies. And then her two sons die. And so she might as well have been barren. The Gentiles, lost, alienated, distant, from the kingdom of God. Martin Luther, no more options. I can't obey enough, and I can't confess enough, and I can't repent enough. You see, brothers and sisters, I want you to listen here because this is more poignant and more relevant to your circumstances than you know. The good news is not that we are making a mountain out of a molehill. The good news is not that our condition and our circumstances aren't all that bad after all. The good news is not, well, it's clear you can't do that, so here, try this. The good news is not, well, since you failed at that, how about you try this? It worked for me. The hope 
and joy of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is not that we're not actually that bankrupt. We're not actually that barren. The hope and the joy of the gospel is not that we just haven't found the right strategy or the right partner or the right gadget or the right church and that we just need to keep moving and keep looking and keep shopping. Oh, that is not what the gospel is, which is what we all instinctively think it is. Well, then what is the hope and joy of the gospel? Well, the hope and the joy of the gospel. Verse 5. Is that your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, He is called. The Maker, the One whose word spoke into into the darkness and the void and said, Light! And there was light. Water, there was water. Life, and there was life. That Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. You might remember the scenes from Ezekiel in which the Lord comes and he finds this baby totally exposed in the wilderness. He picks her up and he loves her as his own till she grows into a mature woman and becomes... Her husband. That's what's in view here. Not only is he a husband that delights to be with his wife, but he is a husband who actually creates out of nothing by the power of his word. That's the husband. That would be pretty awesome. The husband... Who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? The husband who, when you need it, says it and it is there. Do you hear echoes of Naomi and Ruth here? Naomi was lost and bereft, bankrupt. She had nothing. She went back home a bitter, bitter woman. And Ruth comes home one day with an arm full of grain. Where'd that come from? It was this guy. He gave it to me. I don't know. Oh, I know, says Naomi. The woman who had become barren and bereft and bankrupt bitter in her loss, recognizes her maker, her husband. Verse 9 and 10, though, not only is he the powerful maker who is the husband, he is also the loving maker husband, the loving husband whose love For her is stronger and will outlast the mountains. This is the day like Noah. I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. 
So I have sworn that now my anger, now I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my love for you shall not depart. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. My love for you is steadfast and everlasting. He is doggedly committed to this thing. But notice this. I want you to go back to verse 2 in that command. Enlarge the place of your tent. Because the maker is her husband and his love for her is stronger and will outlast the mountains. But it is a fruitful love. It is a love for which you need to make plans. Because when the Lord is your maker, He turns your barrenness to rejoicing. And He fills your house to exploding with people. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. That language of tent there is not just any old tent, but it's the language of home. In English, we speak of a house, and that refers to a structure. The language of home refers to the loving family relations within the structure. And this is the language, this is the nuance of this language of tent here. And it has echoes, doesn't it, of the tabernacle. And what is the tabernacle? The place where our maker delights to meet with us because of his great love. Do you understand what's happening here? What is happening is that we we have this limited vision of ourselves and we despair and we totally forget that the creator God is our husband. The Creator God is the one whose steadfast love calls us by name and makes us to live and abound in faithfulness and joy. That is the good news. Not that we're not barren, but that He is fruitful. Not that we're not faithless, but that He is faithful. Not that we have no options, but that He is the King of history. This is the greater, the truer, the realer condition in which we find ourselves. The greater circumstance which makes sense of the command to sing. Sing, not because of your, the limits of your vision and your circumstances, but sing because when you lift your eyes to sing, you behold the fullness of God's glory. Our singing is not, oh, what a relief, I'm not as barren and bankrupt as I thought. Rather, it is singing because I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, was dead, but now I live because of who my Father is and what He has accomplished. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember the thorn in his flesh. And the Lord responds, my grace is sufficient, so now I can rejoice in all circumstances. Paul says in Colossians 1, even as our benediction will say a little bit later in Ephesians 2, he says to the Gentiles, do you not understand what has happened? You were lost and alienated without hope from the kingdom of God. 
But now in Christ Jesus, he has brought you near. He has broken down the wall that divides you to make you his children and to welcome you to his table. It's the rejoicing of Naomi and Ruth. It is the rejoicing freedom of the Galatians and all Gentiles. It is not that Jesus plus obedience secures our place at the Father's table. It is rather that in Jesus and by Jesus, I am now welcome to the table to savor and celebrate and revel in his great love so that now I am strengthened to walk in the ways of that love, which is what the Bible calls obedience. That was Isaiah's message to Ahaz, and that was Isaiah's message to Hezekiah. Brothers and sisters, do you get this? Do you hear what I am saying to you? If you, if you do, then by all means, break out in translation of 15th century documents. Or you can fall out on the floor if you'd like. But as James Ward writes, in one of his songs, this fact, the fact that the maker is our husband who delights to shower us with his steadfast love and so make us fruitful beyond all imagining. This fact this of the love of the father demonstrated in the power of his servant's death and resurrection makes our Monday so much more than a case of the blues. As Bruce Ashford writes in a recent essay collected in a book entitled Our Secular Age, our Sunday morning public worship prepares us for Sunday morning public life. Because in our gathered worship, we remember, we recount, we rejoice, we practice, we participate in the greater, realer realities of our condition and our circumstances. And so we go on Monday morning and we see the condition of those around us in ways that they don't see. We see the circumstances in which they find themselves more clearly and fully than they likely know or remember themselves. It absolutely changes the way we understand staff meeting. It absolutely changes the way we understand the argument that is going on. It absolutely changes the way that we look at our parents. It actually changes the way we read the headlines. It actually changes the way we see and raise our children. So rejoice, O barren one. Not because you're not barren, but because he is faithful and powerful. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Not because you have not been in labor, but because of his labor by which you are made to live. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news that is evidenced here today. And that is celebrated here today. The good news is not that we have it together, but that he has it together. The good news is not that we are doing it right, but that he is doing it right. Because he is the king who's risen and reigning today. Truly, our God reigns. So, Father, we pray how desperately we need your spirit.